You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. Summer just kind of is this time to switch it up a little bit. And uh, that's what we're doing in this series. We're, we're switching it up a little bit and just walking through a book of the Bible. So we're walking through Philippians. And I started this series a few weeks ago. Then we had a brunch gathering. Then we had a video teaching last week. And so I'm excited to jump back in. We've called it Be Happy. Because in, in Philippians, there's this theme that comes through over and over again. It's this idea of rejoicing. This idea of joy. It really is connected to contentment. And as we think about contentment, um, we're challenged because contentment and reality don't always match up. And, and in this letter, we're going to hear that over and over again, that what you desire as joy, happiness, contentment isn't always going to mirror the kinds of circumstances that you think will bring about joy, happiness, and contentment. And so um, in this passage that we're going to look at today, it's going to be very evident that God gets this. And that, that's really what I, I want to emphasize today in a lot of ways is that God gets the reality that joy and context don't always fit well together and yet they're possible like that's that's a, my daughter talks more than I do um it's fine babe um and 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 that's like really like one of the mysteries of being a follower of Jesus is that joy and context that don't feel like they fit together actually can fit together and, um, and so we're going to really look at that. But as we do, I want to highlight something that many of us have noticed is that when we come to Jesus, when we come to Christianity, we have to really start to look at what Jesus and what Christianity are we coming to. Now, I don't mean this to be divisive or anything weird like that. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying, like, that version of Christianity got it wrong. We're the ones who got You know, it's not, I'm not even, that's not fun for me. I, it's not interesting. But what is interesting is perceptions of Jesus. I think that's really fascinating, actually. And, and especially, like, when we talk about, like, what kind of attitude and posture does Jesus, as we see revealed in the New Testament and life experience, what posture towards reality does Jesus actually have? And I'd say there's some competing visions right now. There's very clear competing visions for what Jesus is actually like. When I was growing up, uh, early in my journey, um, it was Jesus must invite us to go to war because we got bombed. This is high school for me, right? So, so, so Jesus, the vision of Jesus is Jesus defends the innocent. Americans are the innocent. Therefore, we send our people to go fight the demonic over there, right? And, and I, I bought into this vision of Jesus. This is the vision I was taught. This is the vision I believed. And it was just a sliver of that vision, but it was significant. There's a lot of the Jesus I learned from back there that I actually still hold to. There's a sliver of, of Jesus that's, you know, when Jesus gets offended, Jesus gets mad. And when Jesus gets mad, Jesus pulls out weapons. That's one version of Jesus that we continue to see. Oh, it's too bad. We're sorry. Kids are in cages, but 
Jesus and responsibility and law. Like, what? That's, that's, a, that's not a vision of Jesus that I want to hold to. I, but I would venture to guess that I would find some way to talk around it, at least in some way, when I held to that other Jesus. And I, I, knowing me, I probably would have been a little more uncomfortable. I, I, I want to give myself some credit. Um, I think I would have been uncomfortable. I would have probably, because, um, you know, growing up in California, having family members and friends that are Latino, it, it, it's different. Like, you, you, your worldview is different than other parts of the country, just naturally, um, usually, we hope. But there's visions of Jesus that I think are continuing to compete and we have voices in Christian leadership or whatever, which is a bunch of BS, really. Let's be real about that. And, and they perpetuate these different visions. If you think Jesus is a peacemaker, you're a hippie or whatever. If you think Jesus is, um, well, the Jesus I told you I used to kind of su- subscribe to, then you're tough. You know that sometimes tough love is necessary in a world that's fallen. Sometimes law and order trump calls to be compassionate and kind and merciful and nonviolent. And and as we look at the vision of Jesus in Philippians, I can't walk away from this letter holding to that Jesus. It just doesn't work. I can't imagine Paul and the Roman Empire being a minority voice saying, you know, sometimes Rome's doing what Rome's got to do. You know, I I just can't even get there. Or Jesus, you know, sometimes Rome's just got to do what Rome's got to do to maintain law and order. Now, there's ways that people get there. They're just, I think, sloppy ways of reading the Bible, personally. And so so I want to step into this letter. We're in chapter 2, and we're going to learn today or relearn, or reimagine Jesus's attitude. And, and I think what we're going to find is that we're invited to have that kind of attitude. And that should define us, not calls to retaliation, violence, war. Um, it's okay. Bummer they don't have homes or whatever, but they came here illegally. or you know, It just doesn't work. And so, Back to Philippians. One thing we noticed, here's a a map really quick. We noticed there's a few cities we need to be aware of when we talk about Philippians. Down at the bottom, I've circled um, basically what we would call Israel or Palestine, right? Um, You see Jerusalem's there, Samaria's there, um, Caesarea's there. um, And then if you go around, right, so this is the Mediterranean Sea. I'm going to back up so in case you can't quite see it. You could walk around the Mediterranean to the north and hook around. And eventually you're going through some really interesting places. Uh, You see the cities of Revelation there, right? Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Ephesus, Laodicea. Um, You see Colossae, which is, of course, a letter to the Colossians. Um, All of that is the Asia Minor. That's kind of Turkey in modern day, right? And you keep going up and you get to the region of the Philippians, uh, and, and specifically a city called Philippi. And if you were to keep going around that sort of, I don't, that's not a boot, that's in Italy, but you, around down into there, you can get to Athens, Corinth, right? Some of the classic Greek cities. And then way over on that boot, 
course, you see Italy, and at the top of it, at least in our picture, I have squiggles, and you can see Rome. Most scholars today, as, as I've read, as I understand it, believe that during this letter, Paul is in Rome, and he is in prison. This is towards the end of Paul's life, and he's writing this letter to this church way over there in the middle of the map, Philippi. And of course, he's been in Jerusalem. He's been back and forth. There, there are some people who think he's in Ephesus. It doesn't really matter that much, but it is interesting to think here he is in the middle of the Roman Empire's capital, and he's writing this letter, and it's going to be one of the last things he has to say to the world. Romans will come soon. There's, there's multiple, or Romans has already come, I should say, in this theory, I believe. And, and, and the day is coming when Nero will execute Paul. And so Paul has a lot to be upset about. He's under arrest. He, he describes the situation as being in chains, whether that's literal or kind of a laid-back prison, depending on what it would have been like for a Roman citizen in jail. The, the reality is, it's not good. He's uh, described throughout his ministry, he gets beaten, he's been sick, and he doesn't necessarily have all of the resources he needs all the time. And in Philippians, he's going to continue to rejoice, and he's rejoicing in people because the people who received this letter have been gracious towards him. They've sent him money. They've sort of just said, look, Paul, we believe in you even though you're in jail. And when you're in jail in that kind of situation, if no one sends you resources, the government doesn't even provide them. So you literally will starve. And so he writes this letter. And by the time we get to the third chapter, he's going to be like, rejoice. And you're like, what? And again, so that gives us some context for where he is, what he's dealing with. This is not just like he's in his his studio and he's, you know, reflecting on, on the beautiful things of the world and he just starts writing poet. You know, he's in jail. This is, this is raw. This is not like a privileged letter from an ivory tower. This is at the bottom of the tower, locked up. And so we get to chapter two and we're gonna read verse, uh, and it says one. Boo, I forgot to make that too. Um, chapter two, one through 11 and this might be my favorite passage of the Bible right here. So let's just get into it. Paul says this, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort and love, any sharing in the Spirit, any sympathy, complete my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, being united and agreeing with each other. So, so we'll stop there just for a minute. So, so he says, look, if this Jesus thing is real, there's an outcome to it. And the outcome is you are saturated with comfort, love, joy, and unity with other people on the same track. Like that's mind-blowing for a guy who's by himself in prison. And he's saying, this is the outcome. You all are the people who make my joy complete. Because we have the same vision of life. We have the same understanding. We agree with one another. By the way, that's a pretty soft English way to put that. That's not like, hey, we don't have opinions. It's, it's simply to say, like, we're in this thing together. And he goes on in verse three, right? He says, don't do anything for selfish purposes, but with humility, think of others as better than yourselves. Instead 
of each person, <laughs> person, instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Sounds kind of like the golden rule, right? You tracking with this? Yeah. So, so Paul's like, you are invited because of Jesus to be the kind of people who don't just think about what feels good, but what is good. About contributing to the good, especially to those who are around you in this journey with you. And he goes so far to say in verse five, adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. And now we're gonna jump into something that is, I, I think, climactic in the letter. And most scholars believe that what Paul is doing is he's adapting one of the earliest Christian hymns or creeds that existed like an oral tradition, right? So before things are written down in the New Testament, people are talking about them. Because the, the whole Christian movement is not based on a book. I'm going to say that again. The whole Christian movement is not based on a book. If you believe that Christianity is based on a book, you've been sold a book of lies. Christianity is based on an event. It's based on something that happened and the results of what happened. Christianity is based on the reality that a man named Jesus from Nazareth was born that he lived an extraordinary life, that people witnessed this life, that some people began to attribute miracles to this person, that this person was more than a person for some people, that people would walk away from this person saying, what just happened? And they would talk about it, and there was movement, and there was things happening. This same person would be executed by the Roman Empire, and what Christianity hinges on is not a book about this, but about the moment that Jesus walked out of a tomb two and a half days after being executed. People were so convinced in the first century that Jesus literally woke up from death, walked out of the tomb with a body that was the same body, but somehow incorruptible, that, that they had to talk about it. Paul in another letter goes as far as saying, look, there was about 500 people. Some of you are still alive. You know what I'm talking about, who witnessed Jesus after he walked out of a tomb. Christianity is based on that. The Bible comes together. The Bible and all these letters and all of these things in the New Testament, they come to tell the story of an experience people had that was real for them. I believe it's real because I've stepped into that story. So our, our religion based, is based on not a book, but on the witness of people who happen to write some things down about it. Do you see the difference? It's really important. So if there's a nuance in the book that is like, oh, that doesn't seem very scientific. So we care about the event. We care about the trajectory of something that happened about 2,000 years ago and the ripple effects that had throughout the world and our experience of that reality through the presence of Jesus in our lives. The book is a witness to the reality. It is not the reality. And so, so Paul is, is taking something that is part of that ripple effect. He's taking this hymn, this 
liturgy, this sort of slogan about Jesus that's getting talked about. And he says, look, adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. And most of our Bibles do this fun thing where they make it look all poetic because it probably was meant to be sort of poetic because it had a liturgical form and structure. We don't know if it was written down before this, but we believe that it's something Paul and early followers, when they gathered, would have said out loud together. And that Paul probably is riffing on it in some ways and filling in some gaps and details. And that's where we get in verse six. He says, have Jesus' attitude. This is what it looks like. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't consider being equal with God something to exploit. I'm gonna pause for a moment here. This is a really, really big deal. People are like, but the Trinity's not in the Bible. A lot of things aren't in the Bible that are probably true. Um, the word Trinity is certainly not in the Bible. It's just not. There, you know, people were so confounded by this that if you go into the original, like, like, and this is not the original, but like the old King James Bibles, in, in some of John's letters, they actually insert phrases. Like, to, like it's almost commentary that gets a little shady. That, that sounds very Trinitarian. Like, just like, let's make it explicit for people because they're dumb and don't know or something, you know, like it's pretty, th- those aren't in our modern Bibles. But right here, we have the humanity and divinity of Jesus coming full form at us. Let me, let me explain this a little bit. So, so there is a pre-existing reality who is being described here. This is Jesus, okay? And this is someone who is God, and who decides not to allow that status to be something to hold on to. This translation says exploit. A lot of translations will use the word grasp. Not something to be grasped, if you've ever read this, like in the NIV, which I grew up on. And and it's really actually significant. There's many studies that have come out about that word and that moment alone, because what, what we also have here beyond the divinity is we have the Adam and Eve story, right? Jesus didn't take this like glory that he had and decide to grasp, just like in the early poem stories of Genesis where they grasp for knowledge, they grasp for pleasure, they grasp for the fruit. And so in this moment, you have Jesus is God and Jesus is also human. You, you following? It's pretty, pretty fascinating stuff. And he says in verse 7, Paul says of Jesus, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and becoming like human beings. In comparison to being the God creator of the entire universe, becoming human for Jesus is like becoming a slave. Can we, can we respect the metaphor for a moment? Because that's actually a big flipping deal, right? So, so God's a big deal. I'm just going to be human for 30 some odd years and show the world how to love. That is sacrifice all by itself. There's no divinity that does that without sort of like a pride motive in the ancient world. And here we have the opposite. We have Jesus emptying himself, like choosing to put all of that, that good stuff aside. So when you get Jesus, you get what is called in theology, right? Kenosis, the emptying of God. 
When you look at Jesus, it is God in the flesh, but it is God who has emptied God's self of all of the things that were privileged. So when Jesus does miracles, we talked about this in our series, right? Jesus is so emptied of privilege that the miracles Jesus does are human. I think some of you were here for that. That, That Jesus walks on water as a human. It's not because Jesus is God that he does this. It's because Jesus is showing us a new way to be human. He's emptied of all that stuff. And it keeps going. It says, when he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, the layers of that, emptying, there is no worse fate for a human being in the ancient world than crucifixion. You are the lowest of the low if you're crucified. You're conquered, you're rebels, you're outside of the margins of what matter. You're not human if you're crucified. Jesus says, okay, bring it on. Bring it on. Because he says that this is the path to love. You want to know what it looks like to be human when God becomes human? You allow your enemies to kill you. That, this is profound stuff. Keep on going. Because this is where it shifts. Therefore, God highly honored him and gave him a name that is above all names so that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth might bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So his exaltation comes through humiliation. Right? Exaltation comes from humiliation. Like when we look at the Jesus attitude, we see that he's not exalted because he just felt like it would be a good idea to be big and bad. But it's his humiliation, it's his emptying of all those rights that lead to his execution, that lead to his resurrection, that lead to his ascension, right? Are you following the storyline through? So Paul wants you to know that the reason Jesus is a big deal is because he's humble, that he let go of his rights, that he chose love, that he chose grace. And by the way, this last verse is, is kind of interesting. Um, it names all of these creatures that we don't know unless we start thinking about cosmology for a moment. So, so everyone in heaven, so that's like the angelic host and God, you know, God proper, like the Trinity, which Jesus is like part of, but detached from in a body. It's very weird, I know. Uh, so everyone in heaven is like, Jesus is Lord. Everyone on earth will be like, Jesus is Lord. So we're, we're now thinking of like the end of time, right? Like when, when Jesus returns to um, heal and restore creation, to resurrect humankind, all of that stuff. That's on earth. And then under the earth, here's what we have in this, is even those creatures that are be- believed to be below the earth, those like demonic forces, they're gonna recognize Jesus as God. Even the people on earth who struggle to believe will have a moment where they realize that this Jesus is God. And even in the heavenly realms, where there are gods, and even probably pagan gods in Paul's mind, 
they're all going to acknowledge this reality. Don't worry. That, that's fascinating because in other places in Paul's letters, he's going to like go off on how you know, the kingdom is going to be restored and God is going to use Jesus to defeat not human enemies, but the gods, the powers, the principalities, the powers. I said the powers too many times. And so this is of cosmic significance. It starts cosmic. God is God. God empties and now is earthly. God raises from the dead and is now cosmic once again. And the ramifications are good news for the whole world. Adopt Jesus' attitude. Look at the storyline. That's what Paul wants us to do. So I want to just highlight a few of these. And, and really, like when I look at this passage, when I look at Philippians, when I look at joy and happiness, I, I, we have to look at self-emptying when God does it. We have to look at suffering. We have to look at what is real in reality. And so the first thing is adopt self-emptying. He says adopt Jesus' attitude. Well, what is it? Well, one of them is self-emptying. Now, this is one that could get really confusing really quick. Uh, location matters, intersectionality matters. Like, there's a lot of things that matter here, right? Like your, your specific space that you inhabit and your identity, your body, all of these define what self-emptying might mean in your life, right? And, and it doesn't mean the same thing for every person in a particular culture. Let's be real about that. For some, it's emptying of like a lot of privilege, being willing to say, I, I know I have this, but I don't have to like lean into it. I don't have to be defined by it. And in fact, if I have anything, I should give it away for the sake of others who don't, right? Like, like this idea of self-emptying for some of us is more maybe in that stream. For others, it's emptying yourself of the shame that culture has imposed on you. Emptying yourself of the, the things that say, you're not good enough. You're not this enough. You're not that enough. Self-emptying looks different depending on your intersection. It looks different depending on your life. But it's not the kind of emptying that says you don't matter. It's that you matter so much that the things that you think matter don't matter because others matter. Self-emptying is one of the things that um, ought to inspire us. Why is Jesus so great? Because when we look at Jesus, we see what God is really like. And God gives it up. God relinquishes control. God holds back what God could do in this world so that you and I can discover, so that you and I can step in, so that you and I can flourish, so you and I can stumble as we try to flourish. Self-emptying is what Jesus is like, what God is like. We also have another invitation, I think, here, that we can adopt becoming like others. What does that mean? Becoming like others. Well, Jesus is the ultimate example of becoming like us. He takes on human, humanity, right? He takes on human form. And, and one of the things that we've tried to talk about here when we talk about peacemaking, we talked about some of these themes throughout the patriarchy series, is that stories matter. Stories matter so much. And that when we can share our stories in safe spaces and we can enter into the stories of others, we can learn, we can grow, and we can see what is real, including the things that have blinded us to what is real. Now, this isn't 
that we become some monolithic, the same thing, you know, like the American narrative tells us we should be. That if you have enough um, grit, that you all are going to be basically the same thing. You might look a little different, but you're basically going to have the same middle, upper class reality. You're going to have the same kinds of, um, you know, opportunities. You're going to live this American dream. And that, Jesus doesn't do that when he adopts the stories of humanity. He actually adopts a story that's hard. And I think entering stories is one of the most Christian things we could do in the 21st century. Hearing, listening, holding, making space for. Adopt becoming like others. This is a, an invitation to fidelity. Not necessarily to sameness. I want to keep going. There's so many things here. Like I could do one talk on each of these bullets and I wish I, I, wish I could in some ways, but, but I, I'm going to just keep going because I think we're going to really see an overarching theme. But this is probably a really big deal. Adopt obedience to Jesus rather than Caesar. This is something that Bible scholars, like they, people have just missed in this passage. And some of us are starting to re, reclaim it and re-understand that when you call Jesus Lord, you're saying that Caesar Augustus isn't. You're saying that every Caesar after Caesar Augustus isn't. Every kind of coinage we have and an inscription we have over and over again emphasizes that in the Roman Empire, there is one Lord and his name is Caesar. And it's a son of a Caesar and a son of a Caesar, right? And, and, and that's a really big deal. The Jesus narrative confronts it. Because as soon as you say Jesus is Lord, by negation you're saying Caesar isn't. And that's a huge thing. But in our culture, in our world, when we're talking about competing Jesus attitudes, we've missed it. Thus, we have arguments about whether kids at the border deserve our attention or not. Right? Because if, if you think, hey, but Caesar here in America has a system, we have structure, we have order, we have rules, and people want to break those. Compassion always in the Jesus tradition has trumped the way of Caesar. It has to. It absolutely has to. And so one of the things that I think is central in our time, if we're going to adapt, the, or adopt, adopt, sorry, adopt the attitude of Jesus, is to say, you know what? Those power brokers that think they run the world don't get to run the world for us. We have a voice. We have a community. We have a different way of life. We have a different way of identifying in the world. And it's hard because this, if we really took, took this seriously, I think we, it gets stickier and stickier the more we step into this one. Some people have said, where are my taxes going when I give render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, right? And so I know some people who, who literally every tax year will pay their taxes, but the portion they know goes to U.S. military spending, they will actually withhold and they'll write a letter with their IRS file. This is so fascinating. I, like, my old pastor did this. I know a few people that do this. And, and they will withhold that amount. They will donate it to a peace organization. And in the letter, they will say, I've chosen to withhold the amount that goes to military spending and I've donated it to a local organization. Like, and it's just like, yeah, that might, be, that might be something to consider. 
I think the point here is that fidelity to Jesus always is in contrast to any fidelities that we have imposed on us in this world. How we navigate those might be different. But what's different about us, I think, is the next point, is self-sacrifice. To adopt the Jesus attitude is to adopt self-sacrifice. It's to say that when you're at home and you're in a family situation and there's someone who needs something, this is what I've had to learn lately, right? So with Chloe, I remember having a really weak moment and feeling like, man, I don't, I don't want to do this. I'm tired. I don't want to hold you. Like just. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit convicted me and said, look, she is never an inconvenience. And it just melted my heart with joy. I was like, you're right. My children are never an inconvenience. They are never an inconvenience. My friends then are never inconveniences. Dying to self is a very, 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 very slow kind of death when it has to do with our own sense of security and wants and resisting those irritations and, you know, self-sacrifice isn't this like, I must go lay down in front of a tank. It can be. But what kind of sacrifices are you making in real life, like real world stuff? Well, I'm trying not to be such a cuss word. And <laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? I'm trying to just like hold the kids. Be like, you just interrupted the greatest workflow I've ever had. But you're totally worth it. You know, it's not easy. Who in your life is an inconvenience that shouldn't be? Start there. Because, again, the whole point of this passage is like, how do we do life together? We do life by thinking of the other. We do life by caring about the common good. You may not be executed for your enemies, but maybe you can execute that part of yourself within your soul that says you deserve something. Like I said, I'm preaching to myself. That's hard. It's really hard. You know, I had a great example of this. In Aberdeen, Washington, about a month or so ago, there was a fire. And let me just say, if fire and house fires things, or if, if any of that triggers anything for you, like feel free to walk and walk away from this. It's not going to be traumatic, but it involves that kind of narrative. So I just want to highlight that. But there was um, a family with two, I believe, small children. You're going to hear the story. And the house somehow caught on fire. And a young uncle was living there with his sister. And his name's Derek Bird. And we get to hear his story um, through a news report. So I want to put that on the screen. Because for me, when I think of self-sacrifice, like what a beautiful image of the kind of thing that Jesus has done for us and invites us to do for others. Even though I got burnt, I really didn't care though. I'd rather me get burnt than her. She's young, you know. She's still got still a lot of stuff going for her. She's a good kid. With gauze covering his face, mm-hmm. arms, and back, Derek Bird wants you to know how special his niece Mercedes and nephews Junior and Rory are. And that's why when fire broke out Thursday morning at their Aberdeen home, he jumped into action, helping the kid's mother, Kayla, his sister. Well, Kayla didn't want me to bring the kids out, so I ran down the stairs, even though I got burnt. 
started catching the kids. I caught Junior and I caught Baby Roy out the window. But eight-year-old Mercedes was afraid to jump, and when her mom fell off the roof, Mercedes fell back into the burning room. She was screaming my name, so I wasn't gonna let her just sit there. I was gonna let my niece die. And I didn't care, I just ran right up the stairs and then pushed right through the fire, went right through the fire. And I could feel it burning me. But and then I got her, I took my shirt off, I put it around her face so she could, so she wasn't breathing any smoke, and then I just carried her out fast as I could. Mercedes and six-year-old Junior were airlifted to Harborview, as was Derek. He's being hailed as a hero. Some help her to survive it. That's pretty heroic. Yes, it was. It's a lot of heart and a lot of courage. When I say hero, I just say I care for my niece and nephew. I was going to let him die. The house appears to be a total loss, with the firefighters and police just thankful nobody died. All thanks to the quick action of a loving uncle. Uh, I'd do it again. I really would. I don't care. I really would. I'd run back in there and do it again, even if I got burnt worse or died. He not only helped the first kids by, like, they jump out of the roof and he's catching a couple of them, right? But one couldn't make the jump. And so he literally ran back into the house after being outside of it, all the way up the stairs. And that's what he's describing as he's getting burnt. He's actually going back into the house and he grabs, I believe, a nine-year-old girl and runs all the way out, has her face covered. And this is, this is the result. This is his story. And I, and, I, and I see that and I can't help but imagine Jesus having that same just like compassion for each one of us. Like Jesus looks at you and says, you're worthy of self-sacrifice. And Paul says, what if we adopted a little of that in our own lives? That's, to me, that's, that's almost too much to hold when I think about how good God really is to us. And so as we end, I want to end on one more note that I mentioned briefly earlier that we're invited to adopt humility as a true path to exaltation. Do we want to do great things in the world? What if we looked like Jesus and did mundane, real, sacrificial things in the world? Do you want to look like Jesus in the world? Do you want to wash people's feet? Do you want to look like Jesus in the world? Do you want to invite a kid to sit on your knee and just tell, tell them how great they are? Do you want to do great things in the world? Maybe don't flip off that person who cuts you off on the highway. Do you want to do great things in the world? What would it look like to be humble like Jesus? What would it look like to hold life like Jesus held life? Because it's in that. The Jesus story isn't that exciting without the crucifixion. As morbid as that may sound, it almost would be this weird story of, you know, an angelic figure coming down, doing some nice things for people, and then floating off to outer space again. But it's the crucifixion that demonstrates the love that we never could ascertain without it. And that is why Paul will say, Jesus is Lord, and every creature in the cosmos is going to know this. So what does it look like to be happy? I think it looks like emptying ourselves. I think it looks like being okay in the, the, the hard stuff. 
and bringing others into that hard stuff. What does it look like? Well, sometimes it looks like saying, the, the people who are brokering the systems we live in, like Caesar or whoever it might be, they don't really get to define our reality. We're gonna do the small things right here, right now, in front of us that contradict all of that crap. See, for Jesus, for Paul, for the early church, happiness didn't come through everything being easy. It came through looking at Jesus who said, everything for me is actually gonna be hard. And yet glory and beauty and power and grace and love are going to emerge out of that, flow out of that. I want to invite us into prayer. And as we do, um, you know, those who are playing musical things and um, Lauren, as you're able, um, you can hand me the baby in a minute and I believe you're leading prayer. But as we do that, I want to close this moment in prayer, and then we're going to lead into just 30 seconds of silence or so, just to pause with whatever God might be inviting you into.